Hello and welcome to the IOTA Unum podcasts from the Latin Mass Society. In the company of some great friends of tradition from around the world, we will be drilling into some of the fundamental issues affecting us today in the church and the world. Hello again, it's Joseph Shaw with the latest IOTA Unum podcast. And today I'm talking to Professor Robert Lazou. Dr. Lazou has a PhD in philosophy. Uh, he's a writer um, in philosophy, and you'll find him on the academia.net, um, whatever it's called. Um, he's a Tolkien scholar, contributed to a, an Oxford conference on Tolkien in 2006. Um, though being based in Romania at that time, he wasn't able to attend, and his talk had to be given for him by the late Stratford Caldicott. Although he's now working as an IT professional, you also find his writings in various traditional publications, including the one of which I am the editor, uh, Gregorius Magnus, the, the magazine of the Univoce International Federation. So um, Robert is also a father of seven, um, which perhaps says more than everything else I've just said. Um, so welcome, Robert. Thank you very much, Joseph. Thank you very much. And uh, I'm deeply grateful for this kind invitation. Thank you. Well, you're, you're, you're very welcome. Um, and we're going to talk about um, communities, um, the traditional Catholic life in the context of a community. And this seems to me an important topic for us, particularly in the year of lockdown, um, but also in general uh, for traditional Catholics who often find themselves having to leave what community they had in terms of um, uh, church congregations um, and even sometimes family and friends when they discover the traditional mass um, and begin to change their lives, adapting themselves to the values which it inculcates in us. Even without that problem, all of us in modern society uh, are aware of the atomized nature of modernity, the breakdown of, of the community, of a wider group of people who, to whom we can go for um, any kind of help, um, who um, communicate their own values to us and their own example, um, and who can perhaps even set us straight on occasion. Um, but before we just all get into some kind of community or other, we need to know what kind of community we want and indeed what it means. And that's what Robert's gonna help us with today. So Robert, what is, why, why is a community important? Um, I suppose that uh, we can uh, talk about um, uh, four different reasons uh, in regards with uh, why do we discuss about um, a community and not about any kind of community. We have to emphasize here that we are talking about Christian Catholic community. And uh, now maybe first of all, uh, we have to say, I repeat the question, why do we discuss about Christian community? And first, I suppose that's about the concrete situations uh, we are in. We realize under, under this uh, lockdown that uh, it should be better maybe to live on the countryside where the impact of the current situation is uh, not so bad, is not so bold, is not so strong. Uh, second, we realize that um, in modern cities, uh, there are different ways of lives, which in uh, many cases have an impact on our Catholic values. 
And if someone really uh, think about how to become, how to be um, a good Catholic, let's say maybe a saint Catholic, in the context of a world that uh, many times is hostile and has opposed values, uh, or for instance, if you talk about uh, how to protect our children, and it's about uh, values that actually are opposed to our Christian values. So all these questions are related to our concrete situations in nowadays world. So I suppose that this is first of all why do we do you have we have to discuss about a Christian community? But it's not just about this. Uh, I will maybe emphasize the fact that in the whole history of Christian uh, Catholic Church, uh, the pursuit of holiness was always related with the idea of community and not just an idea, but concrete communities. So uh, if someone really want to live a life that's, that can be named a saintly life, a holy life, to be a true Christian, to be perfect, and here I will note that this is divine commandment, be perfect as your heavenly father that is perfect. No, this is a divine commandment. We have to follow that path of Christian perfection. But this type of life, this type of perfection cannot be acquired without living in a way or another in a Christian community. So it's not just something that's, uh, so to say, optional. We can have it or we can have it. We have to be part of a Christian uh, Catholic community. So there is a religious reason uh, for this. And maybe last but not the least, there is a principle of Christian life that can be uh, better uh, presented by using two Latin words that are very well known to the Catholic tradition, fuga mundi, fuga de contemptu mundi. So to fly it from uh, what in a spiritual sense, based for instance on Saint Augustine, world and worldly things mean. And we know that we have in the first uh, epistle of John, the apostle, we have very strong words in the second chapter of this epistle, verses 15 and 16. We have something like a sort of commandment, love not the world, nor the things which are in the world. If any man love the world, the charity of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world is the concupiscence of the flesh and the concupiscence of the eyes and the pride of life, which is not of the Father, but is of the world. So this uh, was a quotation for the first epistle of John, the second yeah, chapter. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's, it's very strong. Yes. And few Catholics realize that this is a commandment. And many spiritual fathers, from the fathers of the church to the scholastics, doctor of the church, and to Saint Alphonse Mary of Ligure, for instance, all of them together emphasize that at least the inner flight of the world is mandatory for any Christian. Yes, and yes. in some cases, it is necessary to practice not just this inner fugamundi, flight of the world, but the exterior one, when the things are so bad in the world, when uh, it is very difficult, if possible, in some contexts to live the Christian life. In some cases, Christians had to do something. And we know from our tradition that in many cases, there were saints who created monasteries, they created orders, they created places for people to live together the Christian life in order to become saints, to, to be holy and to keep the values of the, their religious faith. Yeah. So these are some reasons, uh, some answers 
all of them together maybe form a larger answer to this question. Why do we discuss about a Christian community, the Christian community? Yes, yes. I think um, what, what you've said is, 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 is very valuable, partly because it, it, it brings out um, the fact that we're not talking about just any community. Sure. Fuga Mundi, I mean, I've just been, in fact, um, reading the, the life of, of Saint um, Benedict, and he is he, he, he a classic Fuga Mundi um, movement. He yes, left, yes um, indeed. And I'm very happy that you mentioned Saint Benedict, yes. because especially in the last years, uh, after that uh, very interesting book of Rod Rare, no, Benedict Option, oh, yes. Benedict Option, it's a whole debate precisely about this subject. Yes, indeed. But so, so Saint Benedict left the world. I mean, he left Rome physically, and he went off to a deserted place, and he lived in a cave. Yes, that's true. Right. And and food was was um, given to him um, on by a through a, a basket tied to a rope um so he didn't even see the person who was bringing him the food now um a lot of people would say well you know he's he's not in a community yeah sure sure <laughs> but in, in a in a, in a the, the paradox is and, and we will in the course of this talk i hope we'll put flesh on this idea but the what somebody left in the you know the the the, the, the the not very good society of the young men studying in Rome, which was the alternative he had yes. uh, to, to what he actually did. He left a false community and he joined a spiritual community, even though he was entirely on his own. And of course, there's a famous story about finally he was he was found by a local priest um, who had who'd been given a vision um, or, or I don't know, an interior locution or something to, to go and find him. Um, and the priest said to um, St. Benedict, you mustn't fast today, it's Easter Sunday. And St. Benedict didn't know that it was Easter Sunday. Yes, yes it's true. <laughs> so it's true. It was, he, yeah. he was that out of it in terms of, you know, the, the, the human community. And, and this is the background to the man who went on to, as, as people say, you know, perhaps without too much exaggeration, he saved Western civilization in a certain sense. Yes. Because he gave this community core to the Christian, um, the Christian life, um, which was able to um, to survive the assaults of, of you know, the barbarian invasions, the collapse of civil society, and to and to re-evangelize Europe. So, it, it's there's a you know there's a paradox there. Um, especially from a non-Catholic, a non-Catholic about see this completely incomprehensible. How is it that this, well, first of all, how is he seeking community in the desert? And then how is that the basis of actually creating the true community, which is going to save the, the political community, you know, the, the whole social community, which owes so much to the Benedictine um, way of life. Um, so um, how can you explain that? I, I'm, I'm very glad, uh, Joseph, I have to say this. I'm really very glad um, about the fact that you've mentioned with so many details, actually, uh, some of the most important episodes from the life of St. Benedict, mm. written by uh, St. Gregory the Great. And uh, I suppose that we have some lessons. 
And first of all, we have to understand that no Christian community can be a true one without a strong personal uh, commitment. So I suppose that the lesson from the first part of St. Benedict's life, he had to went into the desert alone by himself in order to find first of all, and personally speaking, but in a very concrete manner, God. Mm. So that was something really important. That was crucial for all the fathers of the desert. And actually he just followed that model that was already established by the fathers of the desert. And that's very important for us too. Why? Because first of all, we have to understand and to learn and to do everything we can in order to get aligned to this ideal. We have that, to know that without a personal commitment to the Christian ideal that's based on our faith, and that implies a direct relationship to God, that's not possible to have a true and real Christian community. So first of all, it's something personal. And when I say personal, it's about, it's about any of us, individually speaking. So any of us as Catholics has to deal with this, has to, to do this fight. It's a personal fight and engagement. It's exactly as in the, it is in the situation of two people who uh, decided to got married, to be together for the rest of their lives. First of all, it's a personal decision. It's about a him and it's about a her. So personally speaking, they have to decide every, any of them for themselves. It's, it's a, how to say, it's a decision that's taken uh, solitary. It's a personal, it's an individual decision. And mm -hmm. after that, it's possible to have the commitment that implies both of them. So I'll say that's uh, more or less uh, the situation of St. Benedict. He, first of all, took the decision for himself, and that decision was based on his commitment to, to find God. So he really seeked God, and he found it. He found our King and Lord in person. That's why he received those incredible mystical graces. And you mentioned the locution he had, uh, the locution that that priest had yes. in order to, to find him. So there were many incredible mystical graces delivered by God himself, but that was precisely because, first of all, St. Benedict wanted to meet our King and Lord in person. It was uh, something very adros, how to say, he was like a flame. And that's very important. But secondly, the second stage of his life is related to the fact that actually he created a monastery. He created a community of people who were striving to, to live together as Christians. And their community was based actually on that commitment that was so exemplary presented and embodied in St. Benedict's life. So I suppose this is an extraordinary example, but I will add something that, uh, that was said by St. Francis of Sales. Uh, usually uh, this, the lives of the saints are much more to be admired by us than to be imitated concretely speaking, because we cannot, we cannot live. And uh, I suppose that there are not many of us uh, who will go to imitate St. Benedict uh, literally. <laughs> I suppose that that will be a little bit more difficult and maybe not necessary, I will say. But in any case, 
we have to learn something from his, his examples, uh, his example, and we have to try to transpose in our context, in our lives, uh, the the main, the core of his example. And this core is based, first of all, on this personal engagement in order to establish a real relationship with God. And that's based on prayer, on liturgical life, on everything that uh, yeah. our King and Lord offers to us in order to, to help us to be together with him and to live together with him. Yes. And that's the first lesson. And second, it's very interesting that even though he was, let's say, a mystic, a contemplative mystic, a contemplative personality, so he, I'm sure that uh, he could live as a monk, as a as a, an aharet, as an alone uh, spiritual person for the rest of his life. He didn't do that. Actually, he created communities, and exactly as you have mentioned, all those communities spread around the Europe, and actually they saved the European civilization and mainly culture. So that's extraordinary. And I suppose that's available lesson for us today. Yes. Yes. In its core. Well, in, indeed. I think, I think also I mean, it, it, it's worth emphasizing that when a, a, a Christian um, mystic goes out for the, to, you know, to seek the, 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 the life of a hermit. Sure. But he leaves, but... leaves the community. It... And indeed, this is in the Benedictine rule, but it's a possible thing for a Benedictine monk to, to want to go out of the community and become a, 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 a hermit with the superior's permission. He's, he's in a sense, he's leaving the community, in a sense, he's not leaving the community. Um, and what he's, he's doing is that he's, he's maintaining a spiritual link with the, with the church militant. Yes. Um, as well as with the you know, with, with God in heaven and, and, and everything, because he's praying in unity with the mystical body of Christ. The sure. church. Um, and that's something which someone outside the faith perhaps couldn't even understand, but it's, 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 it's terribly important because the Christian hermits, uh, looking at them from a secular point of view, you think, well, what an extraordinarily eccentric thing to do. Um, but the thing is, that it was there's no egoism in that um, project. It's not about pleasing themselves. It's not about, oh, I want to be alone, you know, like some kind of uh, Hollywood uh, star um, yeah. who's fed up with the, um, you know, being followed by, by the press. It's not like that at all. It's, it's they are seeking God. Yes. Um, in this, and um, and they are taking Christ's mystical body, the church, into the desert, um, where they are going to engage in spiritual combat, um, and that spiritual combat is itself of enormous significance for the entire community, because the devil has to be sought out and fought yes. in the desert. Absolutely. Yes. Um, on behalf of the whole community, it's 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 I mean, in a in a in a kind of in a spiritual sense, um, and and indeed, I mean it, it's it's I think well I, I don't want to wish it wrong, but there's something else I wanted to perhaps it's it's relevant to say that in the concrete sociological circumstances of the time, 
um, which of course are quite, things are quite different now, but in those circumstances, these monks, um, you know, the hermits, the, the, the you know, Egyptian fathers, the, the people who lived in, in Anatolia and elsewhere, they were actually enormously important sociologically. People would travel to them for advice. They would settle disputes in the local villages. You know, they would give advice to the emperor. You know, it was, they were kind of outside the community, but actually everyone knew they were there. Um, and while they were living, and also when they were dead, they were a huge source of, um, of, of strength for the community. Um, because they were the holy man. Sure. And I'd like to say that actually they are sources of strength for yes. all of us. <laughs> uh, absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, short of going out into the desert, um, what sort of shape um, do we expect um, Christian communities to be? What, 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 what should they be like? Um, can you give us some examples of, of the, the kind of more ideal form sure joseph and uh, actually i suppose that uh, this discussion about uh, uh, monastic communities uh, has to come just after first of all we present the example of the christian community of the first christian community and that's the act in, inside the acts of apostles in the second chapter yeah and i'd like very much to to give this quote from the Acts of Apostles. And I immediately will add that actually it's one of my favorites when it's about what a real Christian community is. And this is one of the best depiction of such a community. And I'll quote right now, this passage is from the second chapter of the Acts of Apostles, verses 42 to 47. And it is like this. And they were persevering in the doctrine of the apostles and in the communication of the breaking of bread and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul. Many wonders also and signs were done by the apostles in Jerusalem. And there was great fear in all. And all they that believed were together and had all things common. Their possessions and goods they sold and divided them to all according as everyone had need and continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they took their meat with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord increased daily together such as should be saved. So this is the passage from the second chapter of the Acts of Apostles, where the first Christian community is described, is presented mm -hmm. to us. So it's an, it's an amazing passage. Uh, what really can astonishes us is the fact that this, these Christians were not monks. We are not talking here about a sort of monastic community, but this is a community based on the apostolic rule, very similar to monastic communities, especially when it's about uh, the common goods, the fact that they had all the goods in common, all the things in common, that's really incredible. But let's see its main characteristic when it's about this community. First, the study and meditation applied to the sacred doctrines of apostles, because this is the first line. They were persevering in the doctrine of the apostles. This means formation. 
So they, they were very well, well-formed Christians, all of them. Second, they had the common liturgical life centered on the holy liturgy and of course, an intense life of prayer. And it's very important to note that those Christians knew that the end of Jerusalem was near because it, was, it had been prophesied by our King and Lord Jesus Christ. So even though they had an extraordinary, they weren't, uh, uh, how to say, pessimistic Christians, they just had a very intense life of prayer. So that was their strength and a liturgical life together. Of course, everything was based on their communion when it's about faith. They had the Christian faith in common. That was the basic value of them. That was the ground of that community. And as a sort of epiphenomenon of that was the fact that they had the communion of goods and properties. And another interesting point, because they were in a very difficult situation, they were under persecution, liturgies were offered privately in different houses. So it wasn't possible for them to get public. They lived just privately. And this is another interesting and important point for us nowadays, especially when we see that liturgies can be completely forbidden by the authorities. And there were many situations in history when Christians had to pray together. For instance, in Romania before 1989, before the Romanian revolution, especially for the Greek Catholics, uh, they were put out of the law. It was completely forbidden for them to, to profess the, the cult in public. So everything was done in private, privately. And there were many, many uh, saintly priests and bishops. And it was more or less the same model. Liturgies were offered privately and their life was based on this liturgical life, but was uh, lived in private. Uh, another point uh, in the case of the first Christian community, they had spiritual rules that helped them to acquire the simplicity of heart. That, not, not was, that wasn't something given for free. They did things based on the teachings of the apostles in order to get that simplicity of heart, because simplicity of heart and purity of heart is one of the greatest uh, achievements of a Christian. And it's one of the most difficult to be attained. And what was the positive sign of God's work in the case of that community? The increase of it, the increase of their community. God added immediately many other people to their community. So that's the first example of a Christian community. The, the, the church itself, so to say, the, the first church, the first uh, period of church, the first uh, uh, community inside the church was that community from Jerusalem. And this is, I, I will say, the original and the best model for us. For St. Francisco of Assisi, for instance, that was the ideal to get back that kind of community. And please, <laughs> let me to emphasize that that wasn't communism. Because there are so <laughs> many bad interpretations that as a sort of communism, no, not at all. That wasn't communist. No. Well, <laughs> okay. we have to, nowadays we have to say this. Indeed. In, in, in well, 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 listeners must must remember that Robert has actually experienced life under communism in a way, in a way that. So. Indeed, I was born in a. a, a my ancestors were Polish and Ukrainians, and they were pushed in Romania because of the wars and because of the persecution after the fall of the Austro-Hungarian Empire in 1918. They had to to uh, leave. 
from uh, to to leave back their country and uh, to come in Romania in order to survive. And that's why I was born in Romania. And uh, but in all these countries, the communist rule became the supreme rule. And I live until 1989 as all the other Romanian people under the, the communist rule. So I know a lot of things about uh, this regime and about this kind of interpretation. It, it's nice, <laughs> maybe nowadays, to mention that we had in our classrooms passages from the Bible. Of course, it wasn't mentioned that were from the Bible, like, like that one that no one that doesn't work um, uh, can eat his bread. Oh, yes, that's yeah. right. That was one of the favorite of the communists. <laughs> but of course, no one mentioned that actually that was from the Bible. He who does not work, <clears throat> neither let him eat. Uh, that's the uh, old fashioned English translation. And yeah. it makes an appearance in the, in the constitution of the People's Republic of China. Um, although as, as, um, as a writer I read mentioned, without attribution. <laughs> exactly. Yes, it's it's exactly. St. Paul. It's yeah. St. Paul. And I, I, it, it is curious that it's, it's uh, <laughs> I suppose they, it's just become part of the... Um... <laughs> yes, I suppose that this is a good sign, actually, for the fact that communism, it's a sort of counterfeit of Christianity. Yes. And uh, that's uh, so clear, uh, at least for people from this country, for many people in these countries nowadays. But I suppose for many people from Western countries, it's not so clear because they didn't have the experience. In any case, uh, we have here in the second chapter and in other chapters from the, the Acts of Apostles, uh, the, the strongest description of a Christian community. I, I, I would say uh, a Christian community with major C. With a capital C. Yes. So that's yeah, the yeah. Christian community par excellence. It's 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 a it's it, I think it's well it's interesting at, at certainly level. Like one 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 thing that that strikes you know the reader of the you know the New Testament is that here's this community and it's obviously being held up as an ideal by 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 Saint Luke, the author of Acts, um, and yet it it's it's not suggested that all the communities of the, the early Christians, the primitive Christians around the Mediterranean, the communities that Paul founded, for example, it's not suggested that they um, adopted this way of life. Um, yes, yes. It, 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 it remains as a kind of I, I, ideal which, um, you know, which can inspire us, but it's not necessarily- Indeed. We're not, we're not told this is how you must live. It's not a rule of life, exactly. I would say that's an apostolic rule of life proper to the first community, yeah, but yeah. not necessarily the only possible one, that's for yeah, sure. Yeah. And uh, this ideal uh, maybe has to remain always our ideal in a way of other, but at the same time, we practically speaking, have to establish what we can really done in our situation, what's possible to be done in our current situations? Because to talk just about idea, an ideal without um, uh, establishing how can be embodied in our lives, that's too abstract and maybe not useful for us. Yeah. yeah. But I suppose that we can, we have to go in a direction that can be somehow practical. We 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 have to do something. Yeah. And for this, I will propose another models of communities. For sure, the second uh, type of community is uh, that of a monastic community. Mm. And especially since the third and the fourth centuries, uh, this type of communities 
are very strong in our Christian tradition. And we've, we've already said many things about the Benedictine community based on the rule of Saint Benedict. But what we have just to keep uh, for this moment in our minds is this goal that's established and that's common uh, to all of them to live a life that's completely dedicated to what is called in the Benedictine rule, Opus Dei, the work of God. Yeah. And that's exactly what the monks, even though, uh, and not just the monks, but uh, the, the, the hermits, they did in the desert. Yeah. They prayed, and that was actually one of the main arms, the main weapons, spiritual weapons in the spiritual warfare against the demons, against yeah. evil spirits. And that's something that we have to do, all of us. It's not just for monks. It's, just not, it's not just something for hermits. It's for all of us to yes. pray and to indeed. learn how to pray. Indeed, indeed. You, 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 I mean, it's a sobering thought that we are faced with a, um, an adversary who is um, determined to destroy us as much as it's possible for any being to be destroyed um, and is overmatches us in almost every way in terms of power, intellect, cunning, experience and knowledge. Um, and there's absolutely no way of, of combating this adversary. Sure. Um, the only way is yeah. is through prayer. Is through yeah. prayer because we, we it's only through God's assistance that Absolutely. we are preserved. Um, and it's it's you know I, I didn't like to to, to to frighten people with with, with bogies, um, you know, in, in, in spiritual terms. But it's 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 um, it does need to be borne in mind. <clears throat> and this yeah. is the ultimate the ultimate conflict. In fact, <clears throat> this is something which has come up a couple of times in 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 these. In these podcasts, I spoke to um, a, um, an anthropologist who did field research in the Amazon region in South America. And he was, um, he was brought to the Catholic faith in part by the Indians, oh. the native peoples, um, because it, they, they made it clear to him the, the, you know, the spiritual life is a cosmic struggle. <clears throat> and that's something which is not at all clear to the kind of, you know, milk and water type of, um, you know, Anglicanism, <coughs> or yes. indeed much Catholicism, hmm. we find here, it's just about being nice to people and, and stuff. Well, yes, it is about being nice <laughs> to people, but why are we being nice to people? What's it, you know, it, it, the, why the context of that is, is, is spiritual warfare yes, uh, in, in a broad sense. Um, so, um, but go, go on, Robert. Uh, so, since now we have the, the, the highest ideal, the highest ideal when it's about the community, that's from the, the Acts of the Apostles, and we have the ideal of monastic communities. Okay. Yeah. But let's talk now about lay communities. And I suppose that this is the most important part for all of us. Uh, the, the, the third kind of community uh, in my presentation is precisely related to that kind of communities organized under the rules of the third orders. It's about the tertiaries. Yeah. It's about the Benedictine Oblates, or it's about the tertiary Dominicans or Franciscan, etc. And what's important is the fact that we know 
from the lives of many Catholic aristocratic houses that many usually and traditionally their members were assigned to different monasteries. And for me, for example, an extraordinary uh, model is Queen Zita. She is a model for both me and my wife. Actually, we consider the family of uh, King Charles I of Austria and Queen Zita in a way of other, our, our model family. But why? Because Queen Zita, who was the wife of uh, King and Emperor Charles I of Austria, the last Austro-Hungarian monarch, uh, and who was, Queen Zita was the 17th children of Robert I, Duke of Parma, was educated in a Benedictine monastic convent in the Isle of Wight. And that's very important. Why? The because Isle of Wight, I beg your exactly, pardon. Exactly, exactly. You, you mean um, the, um, um, oh, mine's gone blank now, um, Core, Core Abbey. Exactly, exactly, Joseph. Gosh, Thank you very much. Queen Zita was educated at Core. Sure, sure. And uh, actually her aunt, was the prioress of the monastery when she was a child. Oh, I beg your pardon, not core, St. Cecilia's. Yes, I suppose. I'm not sure. I'm not 100% sure. Well, I beg your pardon. So, well, core, core is, is the, the um, Benedictine monastery of men. Ah, sure, sure. St. Cecilia's right. Is for women, Arnold yes. Is, is, the, is the community of, of, of women. I, 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 so, it's, it's funny, because, well, English reader, listeners who, who, who um, hear this, I mean, they'll, they'll know that community very well. It's famous. It remains famous to this day. I had no idea there was that connection. But go yeah. on. And what's important is the fact that this period when Queen Zita uh, was educated in that covenant of nuns, of Benedictine nuns, wasn't an accident. That was a sort of unwritten rule for feminine, for women in her family, in Duke uh, Robert I of Parma family. Uh, and that was something usual for many members of aristocratic families to, to be somehow in communion with some monasteries. And in many cases, those monasteries were established with the help of their ancestors. Right, who right. made donations and who helped uh, to, to the creation and to the establishment of those monasteries. So this is a very interesting model, I would say. And it's a very good question for us. Why, for so many Catholic aristocratic houses in the past, was uh, something common to be assigned and to have strong relationships with such monasteries and many of their members were educated in the context of those monasteries. And I suppose that there, that was something really very important for them. That's, that's tremendously interesting, Robert. But I'm, I'm amazed that, that you went such a long way. Yes. Um, yes. And to a non-Catholic country um, to, um, uh, to, to find her education there. And I, I, I wasn't even aware that St. That, that uh, that St. Cecilia's had a school um, at that time. But, um, so but to explain this, is the suggestion that the, the, the particular aristocratic family would have, uh, would, would spread its children between different ones or they'd concentrate on one particular one or, or, or two, um, that they had a particular family relationship with? Yes, that was the case. Right. So in the case of the family of uh, the Duke of Parma, Robert I, they were related exclusively, and that was the case 
simultaneously for the house of uh, Austro-Hungarian king. They were related to Benedictine monasteries. That was their tradition. Right. But I am sure, and we can maybe check uh, some good history books, that actually in the case of other Catholic aristocrats, that was uh, in relationship with other monasteries, with other orders. Yes, I'm yes. sure about that. I'm sure without any doubt about that, but it's just a matter of, uh, of it's a scholarly matter. If yeah, we are yeah. going to investigate this, uh, these things, I'm sure that we'll find many other details. But what's important is that nowadays we have a German countess, a Catholic actually ca countess from a Catholic uh, aristocratic family. Uh, her name is Christina Grafin von Brühl. Uh, and he published some years ago a very interesting book that's named Noblesse Oblige. It's a French title that was written in, uh, in uh, German. It's uh, a common expression, no? Nobility yes, oblige. Oblige. It's, it's uh, usual. And in her book, Christine Grafin von Brühl, Countess Christine Grafin von Brühl, uh, gives many details about exactly this, uh, about this fact. What actually was the life of an aristocratic Catholic family. And what is extraordinary is the fact that they really have a sort of unwritten rule. It was very strong. For instance, the rule that establishes that's not possible for a Catholic to get married to the non-Catholic. That was an unwritten rule and very, very well respected. No one dared to uh, trespass that rule to get married to the non-Catholic person. That was completely forbidden. Of course, someone can say that before the Second Vatican Council, actually that was the situation for all the Catholics. Yeah. It's true. But it's interesting that in the case of such a family, for hundreds of years, for hundreds, for centuries, that was a sort of rule with many details in regards to their lives. And all those, uh, let's say, informal, rules actually were Christian rules inspired by the gospels and inspired by some concrete monastic communities because uh, for them uh, some monastic communities as in the case of Queen Zita were as a sort of models. So uh, we need spiritual guidance. I assume that any of uh, our fellows, Catholic fellows accept this. This is something that we need. We need holy priests, we need good confessors, and that's why we are always uh, are very happy when we can uh, have a conversation with a holy priest that can give us good advices, can guide us on the path of holiness. And based on this, we can say that based on the model of our King and Lord Jesus Christ, that actually is the supreme model, Actually, the priests and the bishops, the hierarchy of the church comes first after uh, our Lord. And we are influenced by them and we want to live under their guidance because we have to accept that actually our church is a hierarchical community. We have a sacred hierarchy. Of course, uh, it's a strong discussion nowadays, the fact that many uh, hierarchs seem to, to um, uh, put aside Catholic values and in some cases, even the Catholic faith. But 
but uh, we won't discuss this. Sure. What I say now is just the the basic teaching uh, regarding the the church, and we are members of the church, and our church is hierarchical, and that means that we are guided by persons who are actually put in those positions by God Himself as bishops, as priests, and we accept this. And they have to be models. And besides them, we have the monastic communities. And actually, those are spiritual models. Those are models that embodied all the details of what a spiritual Christian life means. So we can see that in the case of lay communities in the past, and now I'm talking just about those with some sort of rules, uh, there were many persons who were in these tertiary communities, or as in the case of aristocratic houses, who weren't the members of those houses, weren't necessary tertiaries. In any case, they had strong relationships with monastic communities. And yeah. I suppose that uh, the best model uh, that can synthet synthesize all these uh, situations is the model of the great King Alfred the saint and the great King Alfred, Alfred the Great, mm. the, the Anglo-Saxon king, and his relationship with Saint Neot, Saint Neot was a hermit, is, is the example, is, is the paradigm. So yes. we have a saint that was a hermit, so a person with a strong spiritual engagement and a person engaged in, uh, directly in the spiritual warfare. And we have a king, that was in a very concrete warfare against uh, the invaders, against the Vikings. Yes. No? And, but at the same time, a saint person who was guided by, by the hermit, by Saint Neot. And look, we have two saints, actually. We have a holy monk, we, a holy hermit, and we have a holy king. And I suppose that this is the best paradigm, the best model for us. Yes, yes. Well, Alfred uh, Great has never been canonized, but yeah, absolutely, um, absolutely. It's, it's, I mean, it's one, one, one of the difficulties we, we have in trying to rebuild the, you know, the, the, the traditional community, uh, the traditional conception of, of the community is that, um, as you mentioned in passing, I know you said we don't want to talk about it, we don't want to talk about it, but nevertheless, we do need to mention in passing this problem that we have. Yes. That the, you know, that the hierarchy is not necessarily uh, it doesn't have necessarily have the same conception of things as we do, um, to put it no more strongly than that. Um, and of course, in fact, I mean, this is not entirely a new problem. I mean, it may have a, maybe on a scale, which is new, but it's not entirely a new problem. In the past, it's been of enormous importance. We, you know, if you read the lives of the saints, enormous importance, which community you attach yourself to. Yes, that can be a question. Yeah, and and because you know, not all of them. But not the first one, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, well, perhaps not. But it, nevertheless, I mean, it's it's there's a there's a kind of chicken and egg uh, problem, or, or potentially a chicken egg problem, which is, you, you know, you you need to exercise a, a kind of discernment of you know where to find your, you know, your your where to go for advice. Absolutely. Uh, before you're really, you know, before you've had your advice that's going to guide your life. Yes. So it, yes. it's, a, you know, this is a, this is a problem. Um, it's and, a crucial matter. That's a yeah, crucial matter to discern uh, that. 
you know, I used to have these discussions on, 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 on traditional Catholic discussion forums. Um, and there's a, there's a very strong desire among um, some traditional Catholics to, to hand over the difficult, you know, discernment to someone else. And it's an entirely understandable design. I'm sure we all feel this, that I just let my priest handle this particular problem, whatever it is. Um, and, and always someone would point out, well, if I'd taken that view, I would still be um, going along to my local parish and I wouldn't have discovered the traditional mass and I wouldn't have got into you know, the traditional uh, spiritual writers. And I wouldn't be having this conversation. So I mean, yes. the, entire, um, the entire project of the restoration of you know, the traditional conception of things, uh, the traditional spirituality, traditional liturgy, uh, traditional understanding of community, that entire project is premised on people leaving um, the, what they've been given. People discovering the true tradition and leaving the kind of the unsatisfactory, the half-built, the half-finished modern project um, and, you know, rebelling against um, the revolution. Um, and that's, of course, it's a, it's a, it's a paradox. I, I don't think it's an it's impossible paradox, but it is, a, at least on the surface level, it's a paradox that actually, um, however much we might want to say, oh, I'm just going to do what I'm told, actually, we don't really have that option. Um, at least we have to choose to submit ourselves. And maybe that's a healthy thing, that we have to choose to submit ourselves to you know, the authority of a particular uh, spiritual director or, you know, leader of community or um, whatever it might be. I suppose that we have maybe to, to um, uh, emphasize just one thing for our current uh, uh, discussion. The guide has to be a holy person. Yeah. <laughs> And we have to be able to discern And that's very important. So we have to be um, to be very well formed in order to be able to discern yeah. the, uh, the holiness. And first of all, I will remind the fact that in that passage, uh, which I quoted from uh, the Acts of Apostles, the first thing in common for the first Christian community was the apostolic teaching, was the fact that they were, um, were together based on their faith that was learned from the apostles directly. Yeah. And I suppose that first of all, a person that can be a, a good guide for someone else is a person that really has a strong Christian faith under all, under all the respects. Uh, and I, I, I'm including here theological, um, uh, the, the theological dimension of this issue. Someone who really is very well formed a good priest has to know Latin, a good priest has to know classical, traditional Catholic theology, a good priest has to be someone who has his mind trained in uh, thinking in that way that was specific for fathers and doctors of the church. And someone like us as lay Catholics uh, have to discern, uh, we have to be able to discern that. And I suppose that, that that's not something easy 
maybe we'll have one day or maybe you will have an, in other um, uh, di- discussions, in other podcasts, a discussion just about this uh, issue. How to choose a spiritual guide. Yeah. How to choose a confessor. How to choose a director of conscience. That's not something easy. Yes. And of course, it's very comfortable to know that you have a holy priest, a holy confessor that can give you the answer to difficult uh, questions. But uh, in some cases, that's not possible. Yeah. And uh, we have just to, to, to be very cautious. It's not something uh, easy to find a holy confessor, especially nowadays. And I suppose that everyone is aware of that. Yes, But, well, indeed, indeed. I, it, it, it's, yeah. So it, on the one hand, you know, we like to emphasize, you know, the hierarchical nature of the church. Um, yes. And yes. You know, we're not, we're not, we're not um, congregationalists. You know, we're not, um, you know, we're not, we're not, we're not um, people who want to have just a personal relationship with Jesus and, and, and the church doesn't really come in yes. to, to it. Um, on the other hand, it's, it's, uh, um, you know, the, 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 the situation of today forces us to actually use our, use our discretion. And it's a, it's a learning process. Sure. Um, and I've, I've, You know, I've only been involved in traditional things for, you know, 20 years, which is, um, you know, not, not all that long. Um, and I, I've learned a lot. <laughs> I've learned a lot about this sort of issue. Um, and it, it's, it's, it's difficult, but it's not a difficulty you can escape. I mean, it's certainly not a difficulty which is specific to traditional Catholic uh, milieu. Um, it's very much there in, in um, um In, in the in the Novus Ordo um, situation, and it's 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 a terrible terrible tragedy to see. In fact, in recent the most recent few years, um, one after another of the, you might even call them the you know, the idols or the or the, the kind of celebrities of the mainstream church, uh, be exposed as spiritual frauds. Yes. And the most you know famous uh, tragic recent example is is Jean Vianney. Yes. Um, I mean, so many people were convinced he was a saint. Um, people and it was, the, was mm. the case of Father John Corrapi in the United States. And yeah, well, there then, are many, many examples. Yes, um, yes. unfortunately. Yeah. Sure. yeah. Anyway, so moving on, moving on from that, um, because in fact, the time is going fast, faster than I, I, I thought it might. Um, I, I would like to add yeah. just one single thing. Yes. Uh, actually, it's an answer with a few points to the question regarding Uh, all these uh, communities that we presented, we presented. What actually do all these communities have in common? Yeah. And I would emphasize some points. Actually, in on here in uh, in uh, in the front of me, I have a piece of paper with seven points. First, the Christian faith is the ground of these communities, without exception, and that's understandable. Actually, the Christian faith in its plenitude is the common supreme value that's in the core of such a community. That's the first point. Second, all the members of such communities, even though it's about monks or nuns, or it's about just lay people, in all the cases, all the members in a way or other seek intensely God. And due to this, they subordinate any other activity or illuminate their activity by its main by this main goal and axis of their lives in other words they learn together how to discern th- 
think and act in a Christian way, as our King and Lord himself, Jesus Christ, we discern, think and act in similar situations. So this is the sem se second point, very important one. So they seek intensely, uh, intensely God, and they try to live as Jesus Christ himself lived. So that's the, the supreme model for them. The third point is fuga mundi. I mentioned it at the beginning of our discussion. Uh, always uh, they practice it internally at a subjective spiritual level, and in some cases even externally at an objective level, but always internally. So that's something that, that's important, and maybe uh, it has to, uh, to be rediscussed in detail. A fourth point is the fact that they had usually rules of Christian life. I can say that in the case of our families, we can have such small rules. For instance, uh, especially when it's about the parents, we used to do this. We use the Breviarum Monasticum of St. Benedict. Especially I used to do that and to pray by using the Breviarum Monasticum on a daily basis. Or uh, a family with kids can pray the Psalms of King David in every uh, in every day, or at least in some days, or the Rosary on a daily basis. So every community from the past had rules and we can do the same. We can have some fundamental rules for our families and lives. So this is the fourth point. The fifth one, and maybe this um, uh, has to be emphasized in a special way because it nourishes uh, always our faith, is the study and the meditation of the sacred doctrines, actually what is usually called fundamental catechesis, mm -hmm. including what is lacking the most, the mystagogical catechesis, the, the liturgical catechesis. This is something that's almost unknown nowadays, that this type of um, sacred education, catechesis, has to occupy a central place in any good Christian community. And in all those communities, that I mentioned, uh, this was very important. So they studied and meditated the sacred doctrines, all the content of the credo and everything else related to that, the commandments, everything. So this is the fifth point, the sixth. And this is another important point and it's very practical. They help each other concretely. Uh, I can give, and I'll mention just the name and maybe um, uh, Everyone can search on internet and on historical books. It's an interesting uh, issue. They help each other concretely. And the best example of such a way to, to, to help, uh, to give and to receive help in a Christian Catholic community are those institutions in the past that were called Mounts of Piety. Just uh, keep in mind this uh, name, Mount of Piety, and try to search for it. Monte di Pietà. Exactly, exactly. exactly. There's a, actually, there's a very good Wikipedia entry on that. Yes, yes. And uh, another thing, and it's derived from uh, the, the, this one, this is the sixth one, it's uh, a secular one. They use as much as possible to develop businesses and to work together in different ways. I suppose that's another important thing thing for us especially nowadays and all these things together are things that we can found in all those communities in the past and i suppose that this is what we have to keep in our minds and as a very practical question and a concrete and contemporary example 
I will mention, and this is the, the end of, uh, of my talk, if, if possible. Of course, I'm open to any uh, further development and question. Is based on the Norcia, Norcia Monastery from Italy. I suppose that not just you, I know, Joseph, that you know about Norcia Monastery, but there are many other uh, people uh, in your uh, milieu that know about Norcia Monastery. This is a very good example for us. It's a young monastery created by a community of monks who live under the rule of St. Benedict. We know that the, the founder was Father Cash and Folsom. And uh, in some okay, many of us met him in, in uh, the past. What's the distinctive note is that community is, uh, and Father Cash and Folsom told me directly uh, this thing in a private discussion. They are working to be a completely self-sustaining community. In other words, if possible, without the need of donations. And they have their own business. And my question is, if such a project is, is possible, not just for a community of uh, monks as Norcia Monastery, but for lay families too, and my question is uh, about both dimensions of this project, spiritual and economic. Is such a project attainable for lay, lay families? Is such a if such a community of monks tells us implicitly or explicitly, explicitly that the best way to see God is by living far from cities in order to pray and to work together, why is this ideal of Christian life so little, if any, pursue, pursued by Catholics? Why we can see Amish communities who succeed to transmit their values through large families. Sometimes I, I saw Amish families in past with even 20 children. Right. And for Catholics, this is something more like a dream. If, for instance, here in Romania, unfortunately, I never met a Catholic family with more than two or three children. Large families are like a dream, something that cannot exist. Mm. So if this is possible for someone who is not Catholic, and that's not based on Catholic values. Why can it be av uh, available for Catholics? Why can't it become something real for Catholics? And my question, I repeat, is based on this model of Norcia Monastery. Those monks are doing precisely this. They are a self-sustaining community based on, a, on their faith. They have a strong faith, that's for sure. And they have a liturgical life, a prayer life, etc. as a good monastery. But not just that, they live together. Uh, in in a, in a secular way, so to say, in in order to to provide what's necessary for their business, and if this is possible for them, why can it be possible for lay people? Well, that's my question. Yeah, it's open. Sure. And it, it, here I stop. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> okay. Well, I did, well, there are practical complications with 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 doing that would be, um, would be of course of course it's but not it, a simple it's, thing it's perhaps the most interesting thing that we can we can take from this is, is the question well is is this an ideal to which we should perhaps be to, to be paying attention to and and, and, and perhaps trying sure. to move towards rather than you know is there a castle in the air that we can build um in its totality um and if it's a if it's an ideal which would have advantages, then is there a way in which well, why is it an ideal? And also, is there a way in which we could move in that direction? Um, I suppose I mean there is in a in a well well the first the first question is is perhaps well what what, what sort of community um, are we talking about? And we're all 
you know, tiny numbers of us um, who, who take seriously the, the faith in the way that you described um, scattered around the world. Um, and, um, and also um, we've been, um, well, dealing with traditional Catholics, um, I know that um, because of the, the struggles that, that we've all had yes. in um, finding the, the, the tradition um, and yes. in trying to live it, actually um, cooperation um, can be, I think, perhaps even more of a struggle than, than, than with some others because people are very, um, very reluctant to... Um, you know, to hand over their, their hard-won gains um, for the sake of something which is unproven. Um, and that's a basic principle of, of, of um, prudence, in fact. Yes. Um, to be oh, fair. To be fair. Um, yeah. But it, it, it can feel a bit like herding cats. <laughs> and yes. I know that, you know, for example, I, I've, I've, years ago, I set up a, a summer school, which is still operating, um, 10 years later. Um, and, you know, it, it's, been, it's been successful. Uh, we get children to come along, um, maybe 50 children to come along and um, spend a week together and they get taught. And, and, you know, the main thing there is that they're together and they have, we have mass every day and rosary and catechism and, and, and stuff. And it's, 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 it's a real community building. Sure. Um, but one of the things about it, I mean, it's been very, very positive um, for, for me and, and, and for the other participants. But one of the things about it, which, I, which I've learned is that it's not the case that when they hear about this, every Catholic, you know, traditional Catholic family in, you know, within reach, immediately sends their children. That doesn't happen. Yes. It gains, it's gradually grained a certain uh, little group of families who, who have heard about us and, and, and send their children year after year. And then every year there are, you know, a few more uh, different ones. And then some people drop out, of course. Um, but it, it, it's not, that you know, not everyone wants to send their children to it, and and you think, well, why not? Is there something, something you know, alternative? Well, there are one or two things which are somewhat similar, and, and some of them send them to the homes instead. But basically, it's because um, they just think, well, they want to do something different. They want to do their own thing, um, and I, I don't blame them. It's not a uniquely wonderful thing, but it's it's you're herding cats a bit, you know, with traditional Catholics. There's no sense of urgency about building a uh, community. Um, and this is just one example. I mean, there are others, you know, other, other initiatives which are, which are sort of similar um, or, or, you know, approach the problem from a different direction. And yeah, yeah, they, they, get, they, get, some, they get some support, um, but does everyone think that they must pile in there? No. Uh, yes. No, there was a way. I would propose something that's utopian, I guess, but maybe it could be very helpful for many Catholics. Uh, I would put them in our situation here without any trace of Catholic tradition. We don't have in the whole country any place where is traditional mass offered. We don't have any type of traditional theologians here or people who are founder of tradition. Usually those who, who are really fond of tradition leave Romania to go in Western countries. 
there is no fraternity, there is no St. Peter, there is no St. Pius X, there is no, uh, I don't know, the Institute of Christ the King or Sovereign Prince. No one is here. Yeah. It's like a desert from this point of view. Maybe that's why I am the one who, who I am the one who is discussing this uh, issue together with you. And yes. for us, it's, it's very hard to live alone and isolated. Actually, you and some of our friends in different Western countries are, um, are our connections, living connections with the tradition, more or less through internet and sometimes through direct meetings if we uh, go to visit those countries. But usually we are completely alone. Yeah. And I would um, ask, I mean, would invite some such Catholics, like those mentioned by you, to come and to stay in our conditions just one month. <laughs> And I'm sure that something will, will really be changed in their perspective. It will be a tough experience to live in a post-communist country where any trace of Catholic tradition is just lost. Yeah. yeah and yeah. Uh, the, the mainstream church too is, is, is disappearing, is vanishing. The situation, demographically speaking, is, is really incredible bad. So no future cannot be, uh, cannot be seen here. But maybe this is why so many people in Western countries are not too eager to discuss about community or because there is no sense of an emergency. But I think that now with all the pandemic situation and everything related to this and with many other political movements uh, on the ground or under the ground, I think that's mandatory to think this issue for any of us, in, no, even no. though it's about people who are in Western countries or here. Well, indeed, I mean, the, the, yeah, yeah. The, the, the situation of the, the church as a whole here yes, um, sure. in, in the West is, is actually, um, it's not as, not as dire as, as, as yours, but I feel we're just slightly less far down the same slope. Ah, Joseph, please let me to add this. Without yes. Una Voce Federation, for instance, Una Voce Federation, it's a type of community, of a Catholic community, that's yeah. for sure dedicated to preserve the heritage, the spiritual and liturgical heritage of the church. Yeah. Okay, that couldn't be possible without such a community. That's the good fight, so to say. Yes. Uh, any of the, the, the strong fraternities, even though it's about Pius X or any other fraternity of priests who just try to, to preserve the holy mass of the ages, these are communities. Can we imagine as Catholics that are found of tradition, our lives without them? Yeah. Can we imagine our lives without Una Voce, for instance, and what Una Voce Federation have done for us in past, I don't know, 40, 50 years? Mm. So I suppose that we have to think about this, the importance of this type of communities. I suppose that's why actually we are talking and we are together, not <laughs> just virtually through this conversation. Well, really. indeed, I mean, that raises the, the question about the, you know, the, the, the online community and, to, and the extent to which that can replace the, you know, the face-to-face -face, um, and, you know, normal traditional conception of, of, of community because I know, you know, for, for, for you and not just for you, for many people, and indeed, I mean, even for me, I mean, I, I'm very, very fortunate that I, I have, you know, traditional masses I can go to and, and, and things, but a lot of, you know, my intellectual stimulation, my conversations are mediated through um, 
either the internet or you know traditional publications, uh, magazines, and things. Um, and it's it's very important. It's very important in 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 reminding me that I'm not alone. You know, I don't know what you know. We're not we're not designed to live entirely on our own. And it's not just the 20 people who happen to go to the same church as me on a Sunday, um, because that's a very, very small community. And we're not on a Hebridean island here. And I'm in a city of 300,000 people. And you know, 20 yes. of us go yes. to this particular church. But so, from my point of view, it's yeah. a huge community. <laughs> well, I, I, yeah, yeah. Or a big one. Yes, yes, well, sure. But um, it, it's... <clears throat> So even even for, for me in this lucky situation, um, a lot of my sense of community comes from um, correspondence um, from the internet, and for you it, it's even more. So to what extent can that replace uh, substitute for the ordinary? Actually, it cannot replace the real concrete communities, but it's a very very important help. Yeah. It's, it's an aid. It's, that's for sure. For us, especially, it's, it's extraordinary. But without any doubt, a community is based on direct relationships. We have in, in, uh, here in Romania a very nice and wise saying, uh, you cannot know a person, I'm trying to translate it for you, in Romania is, nu poți cunoaște omul fără să mănânci un blid de sare. In English, it's you cannot uh, know a person, a man, a woman, without eating together with them a good amount of salt. <laughs> yes. You know, you, you understand the meaning of this, yes, I, I, I guess. And so the direct relationship, the fact that some people uh, live together, work together, and especially they learn together the Christian faith, that's crucial, and that cannot be replaced. Exactly as the Holy Mass cannot be replaced by an internet mass. Yeah. For instance, we, we do not have other option. And we used to, to participate at the Holy Mass by watching a Holy Mass delivered by the Fraternity of Pius X in a Swiss community. Because they have a, a good hour that's similar to our uh, uh, program for Holy Masses in Romania, especially nowadays under the lockdown, when it's not possible to go to the liturgies and etc. Mm. But that's not the real participation to the Holy Mass. It's just uh, uh, a replacement in, a, in, in an impossible situation, so to say. Yes. I will say that this thing is available for real concrete relationships too. So you cannot have a real Catholic community without having people together, at least uh, sometimes, on a weekly basis, on a monthly basis, I don't know. As, as often as possible, I would say. For instance, yeah, yeah. in the case of the first community in Jerusalem, that was on a daily basis. They were daily together to pray together, to have the mass together, etc daily that's really something strong but i suppose that at least it has to be something on a weekly or maybe on a monthly basis or at least for instance in our cases the first contact in our case of our family the first contact with catholic tradition was in scotland in 2011 and that was uh, with the occasion of a conference i attended in scotland together with my oldest son 
So that was an occasion offered to us by, uh, by, through God's providence by a Catholic association, a lay Catholic association that was a traditional one. So this type of events are uh, the, the, the best context for creating real communities and real links between people. But more than that, this is something more or less informal, so to say, because it's just occasional. It's just sometimes. Yeah. But in your case, those 20 people are extremely important because you can do things together on a weekly or even daily basis in some, for instance, uh, in the Holy Week, you can do that to, to be together, to pray together uh, in family uh, with other friends. That can be a suggestion. For instance, maybe you are doing that. I don't know. But there are many ways to live together and to, to strengthen your faith together with your, your, your um, uh, friends, your Catholic friends and fellows. And that's extremely important. And that's why uh, a real community cannot be replaced by a virtual one. Yeah. I really suppose that this is just like a sort of aid, a very good aid for us if we use it properly, the internet and all the means, but it's just that, not, no more than that. Cannot, be, cannot substitute the real uh, uh, relationships. Yes, yes, I, 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 I agree with that completely. I, it, it's, it's, it's um, what we find in in the UK, and I know in, in other other countries, um, America, France, whatever. Um, it you know, where we have the blessing of the of the mass, the traditional mass, um, and the people who are attached to it. They very often have to travel um, a significant distance in order to get to it, and what that means, among other things, is that it's very difficult to get them to come together as a group, except for Sunday mass. Yes, um, and it, it it really limits what you can do. It it, it it's it, there may be a lot of homeschoolers, for example. Um, but actually, it's it's very difficult to organise collaboration between homeschoolers who live in a kind of hours kind of drive yes. away from some central point. No, it's um, absolutely true. Yes. Yeah, and and you know, and and so on with any kind of you know corporal acts of mercy or um, um, preparation for the sacraments. It, it, it tends to be driven back to the the nuclear family um and that's what is bearing the brunt of the whole the whole thing of you know the daily spiritual life catechism um and and, and everything else um and i think that it's 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 worth um acknowledging i mean this is a the problem it's not it's not a problem that any of us are, are, are in denial about we all know that this is less than satisfactory but the, the practical obstacles to, to dealing with it are, are considerable. And I think people would be very happy to, to move. In fact, people do move. They make decisions about where to live on the basis of where they can get the mass. Yes, um, yes, it's true. It's at true. least in part. Um, but it, I think that we may have to divide our, our discussion into, into two halves, um, because I do want to ask you about asceticism and I, this might be a good moment to, to make the transition. This podcast was brought to you by the Latin Mass Society. We hope you enjoyed it and would appreciate your rating the podcast on the platform you are using. 
you'll find some more information and links relating to the talk in the show notes, which you can see on a page dedicated to the IOTA Una podcast series on our website. The Latin Mass Society promotes the celebration of the ancient Latin liturgy of the Catholic Church in England and Wales, organising masses and training events and defending and explaining the liturgical tradition in the context of the Catholic liturgy and thought. If you would like to find out more, do visit our website and consider joining us or giving us a donation. You'll find a big red donate button in the top right hand corner. Thank you.